This is Transparency, a podcast by Gender Dysphoria Alliance, hosted by Aaron Kimberly and Aaron Terrell. Each week we'll be joined by people who have personal or professional experience with gender dysphoria and physical transition. We'll also discuss how our trans experiences relate to the concept of gender identity. Join us for a compassionate yet heterodox approach to the question of trans. We are joined today by Lisa Marciano, who's a writer and Jungian analyst in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. She's been in practice for over 20 years, and since 2016, she's had a special interest in gender and has worked clinically with gender dysphoric young people, parents of trans-identified youth, and detransitioners. Her peer-reviewed papers on gender have appeared in Psychological Perspectives and the Journal of Analytical Psychology. Her writings have also appeared in Quillette and Arrow. Lisa contributed chapters to the books Transgender Children and Young People, Born in Your Own Body, and Inventing Transgender Children and Young People. She's presented on the topic of gender dysphoria both in the U.S. as well as internationally. Lisa co-hosts the popular weekly depth psychology podcast, This Jungian Life. Her book, Motherhood, Facing and Finding Yourself, won the 2021 Best Book Award sponsored by American Book Fest in the parenting and family category. Please join us for a conversation with Lisa Marciano. All right. Welcome back to Transparency, everyone. I'm Aaron Kimberly here with my co-host, Aaron Terrell, and we are excited to welcome uh, Lisa to the show. Thank, thank you for joining us today, Lisa. Really glad to be here. I have a perception that, that you are one of, among the first, um, earliest, to sort of draw attention to a, a topic that... Um, that, that we've touched on in in our podcast, um, this this topic of a psychic epidemic, and mm-hmm. um, that's not something that I personally know a lot about. Um, but you were one of the first to to kind of speak publicly some of your concerns about what's happening with with youth identifying as trans. What I mean, what were some of the things that you were seeing in the early days that started to kind of make you concerned that something was amiss? Mm-hmm. Well, I I guess maybe I want to start with this uh, term of social contagion, and then I'll kind of go into where I saw that. I mean, so first of all, I'm aware that the term social contagion has um, taken on a pretty negative cast. I've heard some people say that that metaphor of a contagion implies that, uh, you know, that this is an illness or a disease, that being trans is like a disease. And, uh, you know, that's not how the term is intended. Uh, It's an old term. It's been around for a long time. And it describes the way that a lot of social things are communicable in a way that we don't really fully understand. There's this wonderful book that's a few years old now called Strange Contagion. I definitely recommend uh, people taking a look at that. There's another book by Nicholas Christakis called Connected, which uh, kind of goes over some of the same territory. And we know that divorce, weight gain, uh, happiness, you know, are, are all, all, you know, in, a, in other words, any number of, of human feeling attitude behavior can be incredibly communicable. So for example, if you have a friend who gets, if there's a friend of yours in your network who gets divorced, you are more likely to get divorced. And, you know, there's been lots of research on this in mm-hmm. actual, you know, connections between people, but also even on social media, I'm aware that there's been this, there was this research a number of years ago about um, 
you know, if you're, if you're, if you're interacting with unhappy people on social media, you're more likely to become unhappy, something like that. I'm probably paraphrasing it badly, but this is not new news. In other words, in fact, uh, one of the earliest known what, when this was uh, talked about early on, it was, um, it was known as the young Werther effect because um, the, the German romanticist um, Goethe had this uh, novel called Young Werther and at the end of it, the protagonist killed himself and uh, it became a very popular book and there were a number of, you know, young Werther type suicides after it so this we've known about this for a long time and again suicide is is one of the one of the behaviors that we know is so socially communicable such that there are guidelines about how suicide should be reported on in the media when a famous person commits suicide there are guidelines that journalists should use in order to minimize the potential for copycat suicides and uh you know, this is this is just this is not a new idea. In other mm -hmm. words, it's been around for a long time. And as a therapist, I was familiar with this because obviously, you know, we know that suicide is con I'm going to say contagious. I'm just going to use that language. We know that suicide is contagious. We know that uh, there's a, a sort of a, a communicable aspect to things like um, eating disorders. So I, I already just kind of had that. And then I, uh, you know, I started seeing this honestly, first in my in my kids' social group. So I live in Philadelphia, and I I live in a very um, uh, kind of liberal lefty neighborhood in Philadelphia. So I live in a really blue neighborhood in a really blue city, and uh, you know we we we're kind of lefty people and we have all these kind of lefty friends and my kids kind of went to this lefty school and um, they were kind of coming home with these reports about all of these friends who were suddenly um, identifying as trans. And uh, I also was working with parents of adolescents who were coming in with similar stories. That was enough for me I mean, I'm I'm old enough that uh, that that I had been aware of decades before when there were when 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 being trans was quite rare. So to all of a sudden have it coming in in multiple reports from my kids and multiple reports from my clients, it was like that's it. There's something there's something in the water here. Something's mm -hmm. going on. What year was that? That would have been, I want to say, like 2015. Okay. Yep. All right. I'm trying to remember when um, when Lisa Lippman released her study on on the phenomenon. Was that before or after? That was 18. 20, that was, that was 2018. 2018. Right. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and actually, Lisa yeah, but... and I, Lisa and I had started talking in 2016, and we were comparing notes. So I'm sorry. Okay. Go ahead, Aaron. Oh, no, I was just going to say, yeah, when um, if you look at the graph on, on, on when the, you know, like the kind of the Raj D explosion, it's like 2015 is just when it just skyrockets. Mm -hmm. You know, it's been growing since about 2010. And then it and then it. Yeah. yeah. Well, so yeah, what hit the water at that time? You know, part of it was um, Caitlyn Jenner. Caitlyn Jenner was 2015. 
I, I also think that, you know, sort of patient zero here was probably Jazz Jennings. And I don't know, I don't remember right now exactly when the reality TV show started, but Jazz Jennings had been in the media. Uh, I think the first, I think the first Barbara Walters interview was when she was six. And so that would have been like around 2007, something like that. Uh, but so there was something cooking in the early 2000s, especially about like these little trans kids, most most of whom were natal male. Mm -hmm. There's something cooking around that. Um, so there were lots of strands, weren't there? There were many things going on. It's interesting that a couple of really high profile trans women, you know, that it was young girls that were seeing something in that natal females were, you know, so it's even though it wasn't high profile trans men necessarily, but it was still the females that picked up on that idea. You're right. That is really interesting, isn't it? That the, the high profile stuff were mostly trans girls or trans women, but it, it really sort of took hold in this um, online ecosystem that was predominantly populated by natal females. Yeah, so it'd be interesting to, yeah, hopefully, you know, with this artificial intelligence study, I hope we'll start to piece some of that together, right? How it mm -hmm. went from these really high profile topical news stories to social media and, and conversations. Cause that's mm -hmm. the piece I think that is missing is that, that, that translation piece into the girls and, and social media and how the conversations evolved. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really, that's a really good point. And my understanding is that the kind of earliest iteration of this on social media was probably before 2015. So I forget when Tumblr launched, but I want to say it was like 2012, 2013, something like that. And I, that is where I think the first place that you found, you know, these kind of young, often tween natal females, kind of coming in touch with this ideology. And so what what happened, you know, in, in 2015 was the year it sort of exploded in the media, I think. Mm -hmm. But what was going on, you guys, there was a really interesting point. I don't, I don't have much insight about it, although maybe if I think about it, something will occur to me. What was going on around 2012, let's say, where this ideology kind of found its way to, to Tumblr? I don't, I'm not sure. I think for, for one, one element is same-sex marriage was legalized in the U.S. and that was like a major, you know, I, I think like kind of a, like a major, major civil rights turning point. And I wonder part of that had to do with, okay, now what's the next thing that the, that the youth of this generation need to be striving for, you know, as far as progressive values. And, and I wonder if, if part of it was, was, was trans essentially being the next the next frontier that that the youth of that age could work on work toward um yeah that i mean there's so many yeah. factors and yes. then later on i think uh, uh, another reason i think a lot of the explosion happened around 15 16 had to do with a lot with the the the, the right wing rising around that time and the, the kind of trumpianism brewing and i think i think a lot of the genealogy stuff is a is partially a reaction a left-wing yeah. reaction to to that definitely. whatever was brewing around trumpism Definitely, definitely. And uh, yeah, things really kind of uh, took on a lot more steam around then. I also think there's this other and it, it's, it's hard to pin down, but this kind of academic stuff around queer theory mm -hmm. uh, was really making its way in that may have been a, another more uh, 
um, you know, again, a slightly more elusive trend, but I think it was, was there. So, you know, queer theory and Judith Butler and, you know, um, performativity and all that stuff started entering the lexicon or probably in the early 2000s. And, uh, you know, and, and again, I mean, I think a lot of people have talked about how this was kind of um, that kind of thinking, that kind of framework was really confined to the university campuses and then it sort of escaped into the wider culture. So queer studies mm -hmm. and all that would, would have been a part of it too. So again, many different. Yeah, I think 2015 threads. roughly was, was when um, here in Canada, the SOGI 123 curriculum in schools was introduced okay. as well. So yeah, to, and that was very based on, on queer theory. Um, so yeah, so that I think I would think that would be a factor too. Once you start trying to package these really complex ideas from academia into a curriculum for five-year-olds, mm -hmm. yeah, you have to you have to you have to package those ideas in this really simple. I would I would argue there's never an age-appropriate way to introduce queer theory to children, but mm -hmm. you know a simple language and simple concepts that yeah. I think is confusing a lot of kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I wonder if those—I was just going to say those—those um, those kind of the purveyors of the the, the academic kind of um, version of, of queer theory, if they were one of the few to get to get highly online once we all had smartphones in our hands, and I wonder if that's part of how it was, you know, disseminated at the same time. All these thirteen-year-olds are getting smartphones mm -hmm. in their hands. Right. I'm not sure if uh, there's any correlation there, but yeah, no, that uh, that that makes a lot of sense to me. I mean, you know, the truth is that these are really interesting ideas. And I think when you're, you know, 11, 12, 13, you're a smart kid, you're, you're starting to get interested in interesting ideas, you, you want to understand who you are, that's, you know, part of what comes up in adolescence is, uh, you understand like life is a little more complicated than you thought it was when you were eight. And, and you, you start to want to develop your own ideas a little bit. And, and, and then there's this incredible medium of, let's say, Tumblr, where these ideas, like, like you were saying, are kind of, um, you know, offered in these bite-sized chunks that, that sound really, I mean, they, they sound really interesting. And they are interesting. Um, a little incoherent, but still interesting. <laughs> well, the incoherence, I wonder if, if that's a part of it. I, I know in- um, a Part of the appeal. A part of the appeal. Like what, I have a background in, in design and marketing. And one of the things we learned is that the use of illustrations or um, more abstract um, depictions of humans actually increases or, or lowers the threshold for people to relate to that character. Because you're not, because you're not being very specific. If, if you're, you know, drawing a stick person, most people can project themselves onto a stick person because there aren't specific features. Whereas if you introduce a photograph of a specific person, then fewer people are going to identify with that person. So I think mm -hmm. the fact that these ideas are very kind of vague and elusive is part of how so many people can project themselves into it. That's, that's a really great insight. You know, that feels just right to me that there, there's so many different ways to look at this stuff. And, and that the whole, the whole thing that we have around gender is, is such a incredible, and I want to say like rich mishmash of ideas and theories that you can sort of see yourself reflected in it somehow. 
And, and yeah. that must be very appealing if you're maybe a kind of socially isolated young person. Because young people seem to be getting very emotionally hooked into these ideas, not just intellectually hooked, right? Absolutely. So, so the fact that they're interesting ideas is certainly that intellectual hook. But when you start connecting it with ideas of you're an oppressor and if you're a cis person, you know, those very emotional ideas and then hearing stories about the oppression of trans people or or the oppression of gay and lesbian people, nobody wants to identify as the oppressor. And so we, I think people do get very emotionally hooked into these ideas as mm -hmm. well. Mm -hmm. Sure. What so around 2016, you were you kind of are uh, about 15. You're kind of seeing it in your in your local sphere. Mm -hmm. um, is that like when did you start applying kind of like your your uh, your professional background into the trans uh, stuff you're seeing? Well, I think when I so so my first sense was there was some there was sort of like a social contagion going on. Um, then I found out that that there were actually young people engaging in medical procedures. So someone, you know, if someone asks you when you peaked, for me, it was uh, it was actually a client of mine who said who said that the teen, the but she said girls are getting mastectomies at 18. And I was like, I'm done. <laughs> I'm out. <laughs> I mean, I mean, you know, like the idea of a young person, um, you know, I, I remember this, you know, I had this one client whose whose son adopted a, a female gender role and was kind of like living in that for the summer. And I forget how old the kid was, but he was a teenager. And my thought at the time was, wow, that's really interesting. You know, what an interesting thing to do, what an interesting life experience to have, you know, how cool that mom is okay with this, that kind of thing. And then it was like, oh, but they're getting medical procedures. I was like, oh no, that's, you know, because to me with my background um, as a Jungian, that's a, that's what I call a concretization. So, um, so, uh, you know, Jung believed and, and I, they're, they're, I mean, there's some problems with this idea, but I think it's fundamentally true. Jung believed that every woman had a masculine part of her, if you will, an inner man, and every man had an inner woman. So in Jungland, we call that the, the anima in a man, the, the sort of feminine part of him. And in a woman, it's, it's the animus or her, her masculine counterpart. And in Jungian theory, this is a pretty significant idea. So, and it's considered to be like an important part of us. You know, it's, I mean, Jung chose this word, anima means soul in, in Latin. So it's like not a little thing, right? You know, your, your contrasexual aspect is really important. And Jung pretty much says that for you to grow and develop psycho-spiritually, you're going to need to really uh, develop that part of yourself, have a relationship with that part of yourself, value that part of yourself. So like, I'm all good with that. <laughs> But um, Jung also cautioned against repeatedly what he called a concretization of a symbolic process. So for me, the thought of people experimenting with their inner man or their inner woman, I'm like, good. To turn that into something concrete by taking steps to uh, instantiate it, you know, physically, that then we're in different territory as far as I'm concerned. You know, not not that I am not that I can't see that there's a time and a place for that it, it's not that i think that anyone who transitions is 
that that's always wrong. I don't believe that, but I, I certainly think that it's, um, you know, so um, I'm going to just back up for one second and talk about this idea of concretization a little bit more. <laughs> like, silly example, but someone comes into analysis in a midlife crisis and he's like, I think I need to buy a Porsche, you know? And like what I would do, again, it's kind of a trite example, but I would definitely want to just explore that impulse with that person. You know, it's like, oh, well, tell me about a Porsche and how long have you wanted a Porsche and what do you imagine it would be like to have a Porsche? And like we would talk about it, you know, because because honestly, that that's a kind of concretized uh, impulse in dealing with a sense of loss of potency or impending age and mortality and that kind of thing. And and at the end of the day, it still might be right to buy the Porsche. But it's it's my job, as I see it, is to help the person think about it psychologically. So engage, you know, getting a double mastectomy at 17 is in in my view, it's a concretization of something where there undoubtedly has not been an adequate psychological exploration of what that might mean. So when I learned in 2015, 2016, that their, their pediatric transition was happening, I was, I was floored. Um, I was surprised that this was happening. What, 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 I, what I didn't, when I, I didn't have all the pieces together until I remember, because it was a specific date, February of 2016, when I put together that there was a social contagion and that, um, and that that was interacting with this affirmative model of care. And that's, that's the intersection that makes this really dangerous. Mm -hmm. So a, a social contagion of kids exploring their gender, what, you're gonna cut your hair, you're gonna change how you, your pronouns, you're gonna wear different clothes. I mean, that's, you know, that's exploration, right? That's normal. It's it's nor it's normal for teens to explore. That's a that's a kind of exploration. I, that's not a problem for me. Then you've got affirmative care, and again, if if affirmative care were reserved for a tiny number of genuinely super dysphoric kids, I don't know. Maybe that would be okay. I'd have to think about that more. But certainly, if it were, if it were, you know, as it was traditionally. Uh, reserved for a very small number of people, at least the damage would be minimized. I, I just want to say I'm not I'm not really sure there should ever be transition of of kids. I don't I want that to be clear. But you know, at least as it was practiced 30 years ago, it was a very small number of people. Um, but you add those two things together a social contagion plus affirmative care, and then you've got a problem. And it captured me right away because, you know, I think of this as my backyard. I mean, affirmative care and the way it's being played out in the psychotherapy field, to me, has eviscerated my profession because affirmative care is not therapy. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. it has de-psychologized psychotherapeutic treatment. It has, I would even say, deprofessionalized psychotherapeutic treatment. And it's leading to harm. And I believe it may be leading to harm on a very great scale. So it felt important to me to begin to speak on it. I remember 
kind of taking this in at the start of that day in February. I was really chewing on it in March. I was reading blogs. I was reading everything I could get my hands on. And I, I, I knew that I needed to speak out eventually because I could. I mean, I'm in private practice. There were a lot of things that sort of insulated me from, you know, say, losing a job or something. But I wanted to make sure I was right in what I was seeing. I didn't want to speak out and harm, you know, trans identifying people. I didn't want to harm gender dysphoric people. I, so I, I did a lot of research. I talked to, I talked to trans people. I talked to detransitioners. I was reading all the papers. You know, it was so great because like the scientists would talk to me, like Mike Bailey. You know, it's like Mike Bailey like answered my email. You know. Um, so I was, you know, reading the books, I was reading the literature, I was really trying to just take in as much information as I could. And I, I thought, well, am I going to do this? And, um, and then I realized, you know, I think all I'm saying is that we ought to really um, be very careful before we go about sterilizing gay and lesbian kids. I said, if that's really my message. <laughs> and that seems like a pretty straightforward message. So I, I think I can do this. So um, I, 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 you know, came out. <laughs> so like, I think it was like September of 2016 in a blog on Fourth Wave Now blog post. Okay. I mean, I know that even now speaking out about these things, you know, you can expect some backlash. I can only imagine what the reception was at the time. What, what, was, what was the worst of the backlash for you? You know, I, I mean, people always talk about the backlash and, and it's not that it hasn't happened, but I also want to make it clear that I don't think it's usually as bad as people think it is. I mean, I'd, I'd actually be really interested in what what your guys experience has been, although I imagine that, I don't know, you guys are just probably in the hardest situation of all, honestly. <laughs> so uh, you, you may have had a really hard time with it. But, you know, I certainly um, I certainly had some very bruising uh, interactions with people uh, who were very disappointed. I have certainly lost friends. Um, I have had very vague threats on social media, like, yeah, somebody should figure out where she lives, you know, on Reddit or something. And it's like, you know, but it's it's not like anyone's sh shown up at my house and firebombed it or anything. Um, you know, I, I mean, ex yeah, there's some nasty comments on on social media by by trans activists. The most painful, difficult thing is people that know me in person, you know, that I was friends with who uh, shun me or um, exclude me or tell me they can't be friends with me. That's always the hard, the hard thing. Mm -hmm. um, but, but then there's the other side of it, which is so many people contact you and say, my God, thank you so much. I admire you so much. This is so important what you're saying. That's true. That's a good point. And I would say that even for us, I think I would say the majority of of the feedback that we've received has been positive and supportive. Not, right. I mean, yes, there's been some nasty interactions. Yes. Um, but um, yeah, I think the for the most part, I think I think a lot of people see this problem. They don't necessarily know how to articulate it. They don't necessarily know what to do about it. But they see something's gone off the rails and something doesn't feel right. And but don't know. So when when they hear someone else talk about it, you know they they it's like yes, finally somebody is giving uh, words to what I'm perceiving. Mm -hmm. And when it's people like like you and I, Aaron, people who are trans, we we sort of have what I call like a get out of jail free card. It's like we mm -hmm. we are able to say things that other people would be you know shunned for 
for, okay. for much less. You know, like so. So I have like friends in life in real life who called me transphobic. They are not yeah. trans themselves, and so they're calling me trans. So that's funny, but it's very rare. Mostly, it's people going, "Oh wow, okay, he's saying that." You know, like, okay. and so I think that there's some sort of um, yeah, we've got, we've got more leeway by not being cis. You okay. know, like we we're allowed to speak on things, and I also think that maybe you know this is why. Personally, why I started doing this is because it, it, it like it does give other people permission to, you know, like I was like, mm-hmm. oh, this person's trans and they're saying it. So mm-hmm. now it makes it a little bit more. OK, um, mm-hmm. how much of that's happening? I don't know. But yeah, yeah, yeah. I had to, I waited. I think the, the, the difficulty for us is is i mean i wasn't really connected to the trans community so it wasn't really much of a loss of a community but it would have been like if if i had been connected to the community it would have been loss of community and it would have made um, accessing services very difficult so i'm at a point in my transition where i'm no longer dependent on the services and i waited until that that was the case to to say anything because Mm -hmm. i was concerned like you know when surgeons are making kind of comments of you know that they're totally bought into this ideology and you're speaking out against the ideology, I wouldn't have felt comfortable working with those surgeons or those physicians mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, but even, even sending Aaron Terrell to the WPATH conference in Montreal recently, he, just for introducing himself, he was removed from the conference. Oh, I didn't know that. So loss of community is, is instant when you can't even access, you know, a conference about trans health as a trans person. You were removed from the conference yeah, just yeah. for being there. Well, so I, I did ask, This is I, I was never told exactly why I was removed, but um, I introduced myself the first day and there was like a lot of abuse basically saying that I was a turf and things like that just by being, you know, affiliate because I'm representing Gender Dysphoria Alliance and we were called a hate group and that I was a turf and nothing that I was saying was genuine. Um, and so there was just like a lot of that from, from you know, supposedly professional people. Mm-hmm. And then the next day, um, I realized because I'd gotten all that in in this like trans uh, forum section, like different, you know, different like uh, affinity groups or different mm-hmm. like breakout rooms because um, it was all happening virtually, at least f- from my registration. But the so the next day, I think this was the, this was the last day of the conference because I was um, the, the virtual the virtual portion of it. Um, I'm getting my, my times wrong here. But anyway, it was it was the last day. I believe that I made this post that basically just said, um, you know, trans people concerned about affirmation only approach to pediatric transition. Mm -hmm. And then in there, I asked what what are uh, what are providers doing to ensure using their language? I said, what are providers doing to ensure uh, cis children aren't being transitioned unnecessarily? Mm -hmm. And I was removed within uh, within minutes of posting that. So it wasn't just introducing myself, but it was there, there was nothing nothing offensive or like yeah i was i was removed we we should have had access to that to the to the virtual archive of that conference for 300 days after no i didn't think it was 60 days after the fact okay. but as soon as i was removed which would have been very beneficial to gda to have that resource and to be able to you know write mm-hmm. about it you know af- mm-hmm. after the fact and we can all parse through it but um but because i was removed immediately after making that post we didn't have access to that resource anymore of the of the, the rest of the conference and we i wasn't yeah we, we weren't refunded for the the registration oh, fee gosh. and no explanation was given for my removal so just yeah, for I, asking I, what are providers doing to ensure children aren't transitioning yeah. i followed up just to say like 
show me what he did, you know, that that was offensive or broke community guidelines. Mm -hmm. Show me mm -hmm. what he did or give us a refund. Mm -hmm. And they mm -hmm. haven't replied. So that is so outrageous. That's, that's where we stand with. Yep. Uh, there's there's really no room within that organization, which is, you know, important to note. I mean, that's an important organization. There's really no room for genuine dialogue or question. Mm -hmm. Well, it's especially surprising, yeah. I think, because Aaron, you're, the question that you posed actually fits really well with the standards of care that were released because right. they made right. changes to the adolescent chapter. They are recommending comprehensive assessment for adolescents. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, your question of what are you doing to ensure, you know, that these, that, that some safekeeping is happening with adolescents, mm -hmm. that would have been the perfect opportunity for them to launch into. Answer it answer yeah. it according mm -hmm. to the standards of care and when why they are recommending a comprehensive um you know assessment and and mm -hmm. uh an exploratory approach for kids and adolescents but so that was a, a very bizarre and heavy-handed mm -hmm. yeah yeah. Um, and I screenshot up. all of it. So like I have the thread that I created and then the, uh, the, the app that you access the conference through, there's a glitch in it where I was getting notifications within the message threads popping up on my phone. But mm -hmm. when I would click into them, then it would tell me I wasn't registered and I couldn't access the actual form full message. But I was getting these, these push notifications mm -hmm. of messages, many of which were saying, take this down, um, you know, like, why is he still here? Um, this this is making me feel unsafe. Like right. things wow. like that were just coming through. And I was, yeah, and and some one of the organizers responded and just said, Aaron, it's Aaron Terrell has been removed from the conference. I will take the thread down. And then it was like multiple messages later. It's still there. Why isn't anybody taking this down? Like they seem distressed about that question mm -hmm. just sitting mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. Like multiple people being like, you need mm -hmm. to fix this. Like we shouldn't have to read this. It was really, mm -hmm. it was really bizarre. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's a culture of such fragility. Yes, yes. And I think, you know, it, it sort of relates to this topic in a way of um, um, psychic epidemic because there, there's something about, uh, there, there's something about um, having to kind of defend against some knowledge that's wrapped up in that. So people, I mean, the thing about, psychic epidemics, if you, if you want to call it that, which is related to a social contagion, is that um, it is usually involves some kind of fixed belief system, like an ideology, and the ideology kind of binds the anxiety. And so then you have to defend against any challenge to that ideology, because if you if you if you allow it to be challenged you might your anxieties might come crashing back so these are all kind of interconnected ideas okay but yeah that the just the the thought the thought that there are trans people out there saying yeah maybe we shouldn't be transitioning kids calls creates such profound anxiety in people i mean why you know it, that's an important question to ask yeah does is, so how is the psychic epidemic like it's related to social contagion but but different as well i mean because psychic epidemic comes from young doesn't it yeah, that concept? yeah. can you explain yeah. a little bit about what psychic epidemics in specifically are well uh, i mean i think that's his term for what we we might more generally call a mass hysteria 
And I suppose that, um, you know, there can be sort of a con contagious behaviors like suicide or even eating disorders, but a mass hysteria is maybe um, a, a little bit more uh, in involves behaviors, but as well ideas and beliefs. Um, and, and, you know, I guess one of the classic examples is, um, the, the, uh, you know, the, um, you know, McCarthyism. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, the, and that wonderful play, um, the crucible, uh, kind of gives you a, a picture of that. Yeah. If anyone hasn't read or watched the crucible, definitely do that. I, I read it a couple of years ago and I was just mm -hmm. like, Oh, here we are. Oh, yes, yeah. yes. And of course, he wrote that um, as a parable for McCarthyism. Mm -hmm. So uh, someone was telling me the other day about how McCarthyism ended. And it was there was some senator, I can't remember his name right now, but he stood up and he said to McCarthy, Sir, you ought to be ashamed of yourself. And it just kind of ended right yeah. there. I think it was it was uh, at long last. Have you no sense of decency? That, okay, thank you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, it's quoted an REM song. That's why it's stuck in my head. Oh, like, okay. I remember <laughs> hearing it actually, but uh, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. I think that's that's what we need to do. Public shaming. <laughs> well, or or I don't even say shaming as much as kind of like demanding accountability. Right. You know. Um, you know, the thing, the thing about the crucible that's so relevant is that, uh, and, I, and I haven't read it in a million years, Aaron, so you can, you know, correct me, but, um, but, but, you know, the girls go along with it kind of to save their own skin. Uh -huh. And, and so there's both, it both protects them. And then also they get to kind of score points off of it. So there are so many people just kind of going along with this, either because they're afraid to dissent and or because somehow they benefit from it. Um, yep. Yep. Yeah. Because if you if you dissent, you were then you were then likely the next target. And so that's you right. Yes. Along, right. And so you don't want to you, you know, it's wrong, but and you're terrified, but you just you don't want to risk being the next target. Right. And that's why it, it, why it goes on and on. Plus, like you were saying before, I, both of you are called Aaron, so it's really hard to refer to what one of you said before. But what you said before, Aaron, Kimberly, about it, like it's highly emotive. And I mean, I think for the, say, you know, teen girls getting swept up in it, um, you know, that is that's a huge thing. You know, if you look at mass hysterias, if you go to like the Wikipedia article on mass hysteria, they list like 20 mass hysterias or something. And if you look through them, in my knowledge, most of them have primarily um, been uh, most of the most of the population where it really happened was in adolescent girls. So there, there's mm -hmm. something about adolescent girls where, you know, when we're adolescents, we are very susceptible to suggestion. And to these kind of sweeping emotions that, again, get communicated from person to person. There's this concept uh, called co-rumination um, where, and it, it, you know, there was this New York Times article about it a number of years ago. So mostly when you're upset about something, talking to someone else about it, it tends to make you feel better, which is kind of the whole basis for therapy. But there's an exception to that. When you engage in co-rumination, you emerge from the encounter feeling worse. And what, what co-rumination looks like is, you know, as the term implies, you get together with someone and you're upset about something and you kind of gin each other up 
And uh, I, I saw an example of this right after the, um, the 2016 election. Um, uh, my daughter was, however old she was at the time, she was a teenager. And she, she sang in this like wonderful youth choir um, and it was an, an all girls choir. And she went to choir that night and instead of rehearsing the piece, they all sort of um, mourned Trump's election together. And I picked her up and she was really distraught, you know, and that her friends, you know, she was like, oh, my friends who are, you know, they're gonna get deported and, you know, and this person's gonna suffer from this. And, and I mean, listen, I'm, I'm no fan of Trump. <laughs> But, but it was such a great example of co-rumination and how it can lead to a kind of hysteria. Like it didn't make anyone feel better that they got together and talked about how terrible it was that Trump got elected. It made everyone feel worse, you know? It, it, tend, it tended to um, kind of lean toward catastrophizing. Mm -hmm. and, and this is an this is a behavior that teen girls engage in more than any other demographic group. So teen boys don't get, tend to get together and wring their hands over things. It doesn't tend to happen. Um, adult women don't tend to do this to the same degree, but teen girls will get together and kind of enter into each other's emotional experience about whatever the issue is. And then the feeling of awfulness gets magnified and communicated throughout the social group. So that's maybe another piece of this. I think I know. Thing. I know a lot of that has to do with with uh, with women, females in general being more, much more empathetic than than males. But I'm wondering why is it though that that doesn't extend to, to women? Like why is it so intense in adolescent girls, but then like sort of is grown out of? Like what is that? Uh, well, first of all, I think that probably some adult women do do it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, I, I can definitely think of times. It's it's not that it totally goes away. However, you know, one of the big things that happens when we're teenagers is we we learn um, affect regulation. We learn to regulate our feel our emotions. There are two really big times in our development that that we we learn affect regulation. One is toddlerhood, right? Toddlers have like big explosive emotions, and it's the parents' job to kind of contain that and teach them how to regulate a little bit. You know that's that's what ta basically tantrums are where the the, the the little kid totally just just deregulates and, and can't manage their responses at all the the other time that that really comes up again is in adolescence and this is true for males and females but you're right aaron terrell <laughs> it's it is this this question of you know sort of girls being much more empathic and there's there is evidence that this is innate by the way it doesn't mean every Every female's like that, but uh, you know, generally speaking, on a population level, uh, we we probably are more hardwired to to empathize, um, and and then we're also feeling very strong emotions, and not so good at putting those in perspective yet. So I guess that would be part of it. That makes sense. Yeah, I think the one important thing for Sorry, people what were you going to say? I was going to say I think one important thing that for people to understand about a social contagion it's not that people are just faking it. Like it, it's yeah. not it's not like a malingering situation where people are aware that I'm going to put this on in order to achieve an end. It's a very subconscious thing that happens. I I, I wonder too about some of the parallels maybe between a social contagion that revol that involves you know a health condition like this like. Uh, 
um, and a conversion disorder. I was at a conversion disorder conference years ago and, and became very interested in the in the concept. But one of the things they said is that it, the the pathway is usually people feel a very strong, uncomfortable emotions. So they might be saying to a therapist, I'm really struggling with anxiety, for example. And then they develop these physical symptoms and the emotion, the emotional aspects just disappear. But the, the but the disease course, the sort of pseudo disease course tends to mimic a disease course that they've witnessed or experienced in the past. And so it's very highly suggestible. And, and I think a mistake a lot of people make in, in treatment, because I was working for um, a neuro neuropsych unit at, where there was an individual with pseudo seizures. So he had a conversion oh disorder, was having these fake seizures, but they from the outside eye, they looked exactly like real seizures but there was no seizure activity in the brain. But the, the response that some of the staff was taking is every time he had one of these seizures, they would rush in and as if he was having a real seizure and they were treated as though he was having a real seizure. And in just the week, first week that I was there, he went from having these seizures once in a while to several times a day because mm -hmm. it's so highly suggestible. Mm -hmm. That, that I'm so glad you brought that up. There's so many things I want to respond to there. That is a totally fascinating story. I, I envy you for having that experience. Um, but I, I, maybe I'll take the last thing first, which is it really matters. And, you know, in that book, Strange Contagion, he talks about this exact point. It matters how you respond to it. Because um, if, you, if you give it lots of attention and, and you respond to it as if it's, um, what the person says it is, you really reinforce it. So for example, the, um, the laughing disease, and I think it was in Tanzania, maybe in like, was it in like the sixties or the seventies? Again, it was adolescent girls. And there was this one school, I might be getting the details wrong. I'm really sorry if I am, but just, uh, let's just glide along here. I think it was a, an all girls school in Tanzania. And the, these girls started having these kind of fits of hysterical laughter that were, you know, making it impossible for them to stay in class and that kind of thing. And it spread to more and more and more girls. And what they, they made two big mistakes. They closed the school, sending all these girls home to their villages, and they called in international experts. And, and it's, it's, there's this, um, there's this thing called social referencing where, uh, if, you know, when, when, when you have a little kid, right. And they fall down, you're, and they, they fall down like a little, an 18 month old will toddle along and then like fall down and then like, look at you, you know, <laughs> they'll look at mom. And if you go, <gasps> they start to cry. And if you go, you're okay. They get back up and they keep playing. So, yeah. uh, so it's like they, they're, we're always looking to people to say like, how serious is this? Like it's an mm -hmm. unconscious thing. So these girls are having these, you know, these kind of hysterical laughing, truly hysterical in a psychiatric sense. And, and what happens is they call an international authority. So it's like, yes, this is a big emergency. So it just kind of reinforces it. And, and, and then it, it just spread further rather than if you, if you, if you take it seriously, you know, cause like you said, Aaron, it's, it, they're not faking it. They really, the suffering is real. It just doesn't have the same Genesis that they think it has. So if you take the suffering seriously and you're really compassionate, but but you don't um, you don't kind of validate the, uh, the the story about where the suffering's coming from, and you kind of demand a little bit of responsibility there. 
um, then it can resolve, you know, it's, I think that's, it's sort of like there's compassion and then there's like, but, but there's also responsibility. Um, so, so that's one thing I want to say to that story. And, uh, you know, it, it is, it is this interplay between sort of suggestibility and, and just the nature of psychic distress. So the nature of psychic distress is that it's kind of amorphous, or I've described it somewhere as protein, like distress is distress and it's real, but then how do we manage to basically express that distress? I mean, I think it's deeply biological actually, that when you're feeling distress of one kind or another, you need to find a way to communicate it. And this is unconscious. So, I mean, even, even animals do this, right? If you have a dog, you know, and the dog starts not feeling well, you just notice like subtle behavioral changes. I mean, it, it's gotta be so important, and especially humans. I mean, we're such social creatures. We, we, we need to communicate our distress to each other so that we can get help and care. So how are we going? We're having emotional distress. How do we communicate that? I mean, we can talk about it, but how do we even formulate it? And, and, and really, you know, there's, it, it, it sort of is this generalized thing that we can then give meaning and structure to, but the meaning and structure is largely provided by culture. So, um, in the Middle Ages, the most one of the most popular mental health, one of the most common mental health disorders was called the glass. Well, I don't know what it was called, but now we refer to it as the glass delusion. So there was some king oh, of France, yeah. some king of France, I can't remember his name right now. It may have been, oh, I don't remember which one, the ninth or something, Charles. Anyway, he developed this belief that he was made of glass. So periodically he would have to be wrapped in very soft fabrics and carried about because he was worried he was going to break. Well, after him, it sort of spread and it was mostly in the upper classes and it became very, very common. Well, now it's like with that, that is exceedingly rare to find someone who believes, you know, that he or she is made of glass. Now we have other ways. So this, um, this medical historian named Edward Shorter developed this concept of the symptom pool. So what he says is that when you feel distress, you need to figure out, uh, unconsciously, you go through a process where you find a way to express it that will, um, that is culturally understood and validated and will result in you getting care. So if I were to say, <laughs> I'm made of glass. Like people would be like, what, what the fuck are you talking about? <laughs> you know, but if you say I'm gender dysphoric, people immediately know what that is and they're immediately going to tune in and take it seriously. So there's something about like what's in the symptom pool. And like you're saying, Erin Kimberly, like seizures were in the symptom pool. And so this became, this became a, like a viable way of getting um, care, attention, and treatment for this mm -hmm. distress. That was very real, but it wasn't actually a seizure. Um, so I, yeah, yeah I, I think it's really whereas fascinating. My, whereas my approach with this individual was sort of say, you know, like I noticed that this is getting worse for you. That's, you know, that's unfortunate because when he, when I first started working with him, I was taking him out for coffee and, and doing things like that. And I was saying, well, you know, it's unfortunate that we, because you're having these episodes so frequently now, we're not able to go for coffee anymore. And, and really kind of reinforcing some of the um some of the, the cost of that behavior yeah right and trying yes. to reinforce this would be so much better if we were still able to go out and do those things and 
and taking a much more emotionally neutral approach with him, not not an alarmist approach. That's that's a perfect uh, word for it. Is that when we we get really alarmed, it tends to uh, it tends to actually reinforce the behavior. So how did that go? Your approach. It. Um, I wasn't there long enough to see sort of the long term trajectory, but I would notice, like for example, there was a time because you could usually see the seizures, the pseudo seizures starting. They would. There were usually warning signs. And so I was sitting there, I was experimenting a little bit and we were talking about some, you know, fa- how does, I asked him, how does your family pr- deal with emotions? Like, do your parents talk about emotions? How does that happen in your family? And he started to have these warning signs of a seizure in the mm-hmm. context of that conversation. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and then, so I immediately kind of switched to a more neutral, less emotional conversation. And he walked right out of that, those symptoms. So he didn't end up having a pseudo seizure. So you can see that the pseudo seizures were um, doing all kinds of work for him. They were they were getting him care and attention. They were also helping him to avoid something painful and defend against feeling. And I mean, I think I think you can see that also with these, uh, say, trans identifying adolescent girls who, you know, a, a lot of the times, you know, it, it, there's so much that the trans identification is doing. It's helping them separate from mom at a time that they're supposed to be separating from mom. And it's like, I'm so much not, not I'm so much not like you that I'm not even a woman. But then, I mean, it's very scary to separate from your parents and, and there's an ambivalence around it. And the trans identification allows you to kind of put the stake in the ground. I'm not like you, but actually a lot of these parents get so activated when these kids come out and they kind of, the whole family starts to kind of orbit around the kid and the trans identification that takes up so much time and concern that it must be incredibly, um, you know, gratifying to to these teens who suddenly really have their mom's full attention or their parents full attention. So it's doing that work. And also, you know, Aaron Kimberly, as per your case, it might help them avoid developmental challenges like it's time to get your license. You've got to start worrying about your grades. You know, um, maybe it's time to start thinking about, you know, college or getting a boyfriend or a girlfriend. And, uh, you know, these these kids can be very regressed in terms of these normal developmental things. And being trans can kind of become the excuse for not doing those things, in essence. So it, it's it's doing a lot of kind of work in the person's life. I've noticed a lot of the the youth that I've worked with who identify as trans, a lot of them, some of the, this sort of consistent patterns that I've noticed. And one of them is that these young people can't imagine a future. If you start asking them questions about what career do you want in the future? Like what, what kind of person do you want to be in the future? They really have struggle to, to answer those questions. And not, not all youth at that age have trouble answering those questions. It's, it's, but it's a pattern I've noticed with, um, those that I, that I think fit more the ROGD profile and pattern. And how do you understand that? Not being able to understand a future? Yeah, not being, yeah not being able to have an image of the future. What, what, is that antecedent to the trans identification? Is that a result of it? What do you? Well, it also seems to go part and parcel with not a lot, not, not much of us healthy socialization. Most of them are gaming and online. Mm. And so their concept of self seems to be based on this sort of virtual reality more than real reality. So to, to, they're not, 
they're not engaged in like real life hobbies and social interaction. And so, so I can, I guess I've related because how do you imagine a future as a anime avatar? Yeah, that's really interesting. Like they can't really, they don't have a picture of themselves out in the world. Yeah, that makes sense yeah. to me. In terms of historical examples of some psychic epidemics or mass hysterias, you know, in terms of the course of them to give us a little bit of hope in this situation, mm -hmm. because all of those hysterias have ended mm -hmm. eventually. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, of course, as you mentioned earlier, the danger of this one is that we're providing medical interventions. So, mm -hmm. you know, when it eventually ends, I think we're going to have a lot of people regretting these medical interventions. Um, I think it's a fear that a lot of us share. Um, but is there anything that you can think of just from looking at some of those historical examples? So the one that I that comes to mind for me because of the involvement of therapists is the mm -hmm. uh, is the um, dissociative identity disorder hysteria that happened when yeah. the book Sybil and then the movie Sybil was released. So we saw similar trends, right? And these numbers of people stepping forward saying, I have this and mm -hmm. presenting with symptoms. And that eventually did end. Like, what do you think we could learn from some of those past hysterias um, that we could maybe apply to this case? Yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, it's something I'd, I'd love to kind of get my hands around because I, you know, I, I started training to be a therapist in the 90s. And I, so I, I which was sort of at the tail end of the, the DID stuff and also the, um, you know the false false memories stuff uh um and and you know so i would so sort of seen it and then to realize that this was sort of like another go around was kind of depressing because it made me realize that the field hasn't learned you know um so yeah so i mean i'd, I'd love i'd love for there to be a post-mortem on this and for the field to really take in that that we have to have a different approach and I, I have some some thoughts about that but uh you know unfortunately i think you know i think the did in particular and and well and false memories i think it was lawsuits but there yeah. there there has to be evidence of harm that is and i think this is terrible but i think it's just how it is there has to be evidence of harm that is so widespread and incontrovertible that people can't keep their head in people can't stay behind the veil of ideology any longer and have to admit you know this is happening and it's and it's harming people and, you know and i i think we're getting there and it's terrible to say you know but i also think you know back in 2016 i, I was talking about this and people were like what and now people are like oh yeah i you know i know like three kids who, you know who are transitioning right now and it's like it's so it's so everywhere that i i find it hard to imagine that most people are not seeing that it's a social contagion because it's so widespread mm -hmm. so in some ways you know in some ways i feel like this is a terrible thing to say but even when it's getting worse it's getting better and i hate the fact i hate the fact that you know that it that it may have to get worse before it gets better you know but but i think that might be true and i always say to people you know like today x number of kids will come out to their parents as trans and um some of those parents will be legislators or judges or you know academics or policymakers or journalists and you know at the end of today x many more people will get it 
Because I do find that people don't tend, many people don't, you know, of the liberal persuasion. It, it's like in the abstract, it sounds like such a good idea to support trans kids and, um, you know, uh, let them let them be who they want to be. And, and it sounds it's like, how can you argue with that? But the day it happens to your kid, you, you suddenly get what's going on. You, you, you don't, you don't, when it's someone else's kid, you just think, well, yeah, there's, there's such a thing as trans kids and her kid must be one of those. When it's your kid, you're like, this is not who my kid is. And oh my God, I'm staring down the barrel of these irreversible medical procedures that my kid wants tomorrow, you mm -hmm. know? Um, so, I, so I think that, you know, it, it's terrible that that's what it takes to wake people up, but that does tend to wake people up and it is happening to more and more people every day. Yeah. One, one final question and to do with what you uh, just referenced earlier um, before we wrap up, what you said you've got some thoughts on what that post-mortem reckoning within the psychological field uh, is going to be. What, what is that? What is that going to look like? Okay. What do you, what do you predict? I'm glad you asked me that question. Well, so first of all, I think that it's, it's, I've never seen it seen this discussed anywhere. It's something I've thought a lot about since I've gone down this rabbit hole, you know, nearly all symptoms of uh, psychiatric or mental health uh, disorders are either subjective or behavioral. So they are, they are almost a hundred percent susceptible to, um, to, to suggestion or to uh, kind of medical shaping or, um, or even to, uh, you know, malingering or, uh, um, uh, you know, kind of being developed like, like conversion, like a conversion disorder. So, uh, you know, for example, if I have a really sore throat and I go to the doctor and I, and I say, you know, I have strep throat and I want antibiotics. The doctor is going to do a culture, find the little bug that's causing my sore throat and give me an antibiotic to kill that bug. If I go to a therapist and I say, I'm really depressed, I want electroconvulsive therapy, you know, thank God most therapists are going to say, well, well, let's talk about this a little bit more. But depression is purely subjective experience. It's purely subjective. The only way that I know I have depression is because of how I'm feeling and I can communicate that to someone else. There's no, there's no blood test for it. There's no, like, like you were saying, Aaron, this guy was having seizures, but there were no seizure activity in the brain. Um, so, so if you think about, you know, gender dysphoria, anxiety, depression, uh, you know, all of these things, I mean, you might have physiological effects from anxiety, but, but it's still, um, it's still a kind of negotiation between a feeling state, a subjective feeling state and your body. It isn't, it isn't this kind of very cut and dry, um, you know, pathogen. So there's lots of different, it's very, it's all very fungible. It goes, it makes me go back to this word protein. You know, it's like, it can take different forms. It can move around like a conversion disorder. It starts as, as a, uh, it starts as a mental distress and it moves into the body. And, and I think we know that, but I don't think we, we give that enough credence because we have adopted the medical model in mental health where we think about it analogously to, you know, having strep throat. You know, having depression is not having strep throat. 
you know, and, and I'm, I'm not, I mean, this kind of leads into a discussion about psychiatric medication, mm -hmm. which is like a whole other thing. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not anti-psychiatric medication, but it's not taking an antibiotic for strep throat. It's not, a sil it's not a silver bullet that's like formulated specifically for that one symptom. And um, some medications might be helpful for some disorders and some people, but we've adopted this wholesale way of thinking. We've transferred it from the body onto the psyche. And it just doesn't, it doesn't help because part of the relevance is, you know, if, if you see someone having a seizure and they're, and they're actually having a seizure, there is a way to treat that. If you see someone having a seizure and they're not having a seizure, um, treating it like it's a seizure will make it worse. So, uh, you know, when, when someone's having, um, uh, a gender dysphoria, treating it like, um, well, let me just, uh, let me just, you know, sort of, um, act like this is what it is, right? It's just the, the most superficial way of understanding this experience. So let me change your body and turn, turn you into someone who looks like the opposite sex and that will fix everything. It's an incredibly kind of concrete way of looking at things because it's a medicalized way of looking at things that doesn't take into account the kind of nature of psychic reality. Um, so that's one thing is I think we have to really get clear on the fact that these are all subjective experiences or almost a hundred percent are subjective experiences. I also think, and this may be related is, well, I think it is related, is that we, we need to be aware of the symbolic um, level of, uh, of, our, of, our, of how we navigate the world, because we, we are symbolic beings. We do think, we do operate symbolically, essentially. I mean, and that it's just the nature of being human, right? We've always had these big symbolic stories and myth and everything. Well, symptoms are symbolic. Psychiatric symptoms are symbolic. I mean, they may be other things too, but they're definitely symbolic. Like, like Aaron, I'd love to talk more about this case with you, but my guess is that there's a particular re reason why his psyche landed on seizures. It wound up doing a lot of good work for him. It was kind of fulfilling some important functions. But my guess is if we peel back the story, there's also a way that it symbolized something true. So it was a true expression of something, but not literally, but symbolically. So, you know, I, I think, you know, gender dysphoria is fascinating when you consider what it might mean symbolically, but we're, we're just taking it literally. And I, I think that that is probably a key feature in many psychic epidemics is that um, the thing is taken literally and there's the symbolic space around it to consider what else it might be is collapsed. So that's, that makes that's sense. where I would start. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful. I feel like we could talk for another hour, but um, thank you so much for, for joining us today and, and spending this time with us. It's been well, fascinating. It was, it was great talking to you guys. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Awesome. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Transparency Podcast. If you enjoy our content, please help out our algorithm by hitting like or subscribe. If you'd like to make a donation, follow the link to our PayPal account. On behalf of the Gender Dysphoria Alliance, thanks for your support.